me and you lift the wrong fader. You are welcome back to this parish, my friend. I want to ask you a serious question straight off the bat. Um, Chris has been in touch with the program, um, and he's, he's raised an interesting point about echo chambers. And he says, in his second message to me, he says, I've listened to your show for years, he says, and enjoy, and I'm sure he listens to, to many other shows in the independent media. He says, interpretation of echo chamber perhaps differs from perspective. Once being aware of the obvious inversion of our script-driven movie, it sometimes becomes comfortable to tread water in that spot. The repetition of frustration is not healthy when there is a much bigger picture. Now, you have legions of readers and you have legions of listeners around the world and you have had for many years. Do you sometimes worry, Kevin, that your show and your Substack account and even shows like this one, that they become a kind of a safety valve or a safe place for people to come, to gather, to get away from the tyranny or just to be reassured that they're not going mad and that in that reality then, people are maybe less likely to actually take steps to fight back against the tyranny. Is that something we need to be concerned about, echo chambers in the independent media? What say you? Well, Richie, if what we're doing is running a safe space for sane people, I guess that there are worse things we could be doing. As far as whether that would be leading people to be inactive, I don't think so. Uh, it seems that all of the censorship suggests that the uh, the other side really worries about what we're doing and doesn't think that it's actually stopping people from taking action. Uh, and I, I don't think it does either. If you ask why are people not taking action as much as they should be, I don't think the first answer is that, oh, they're they're just uh, pacified and tranquilized because they listen to Kevin Barrett and Rich Allen. Uh, I hope not anyway, but I, I don't think so. But I, I do think it's true that maybe we sort of do too much venting and not enough strategic thinking, and that what strategic thinking that goes on on our side isn't good enough. That might be true. Fair enough. Fair enough. I do worry about it, though. I do worry about the the possibility that what we do is, well, what, what, I'd speak for myself anyway, and there's no fishing for compliments here at all, but that it, I'll tell you why I say this, because quite a considerable, um, oh God, a lot of the correspondence I receive, Kevin, are from people saying, thanks for everything you kept me sane during the pandemic and you keep me sane now. And that's nice that on when you look at it from one perspective. But from another perspective, it's like, well, maybe I'm being a bit um, precious maybe, but that when you feature doctors and nurses and, and academics who are giving you a different perspective and kind of explaining that we are going down a very dystopian road, I kind of hope that you might take that information and do something with it. Do you get what I'm saying? Absolutely. But it's not always clear precisely what kind of action would help. Um, you know, this past week we lost two American geniuses, uh, n namely uh, Cormac McCarthy and Ted Kaczynski. And of the two of them, uh, Kaczynski was the one who really took action. He decided he just wasn't going to take it anymore, and he started sending bombs to people that he saw as identified with the kind of 
technological evil that was reducing us to slavery. Now, I don't think he ended up really accomplishing all that much. Uh, I mean, you can, you know, you can argue whatever you like, but he certainly didn't stop the onslaught of the horrific technologies that are enslaving us. And uh, when then when you look at Cormac McCarthy, who also unleashed a horrific wave of ultraviolence, but he did it in his fiction. He uh, wrote about it. He didn't perpetrate it. And in fact, uh, the ultraviolence in his masterpiece, Blood Meridian, is a reflection of the real horrific violence involved in the creation of the United States of America, where just lawless massacres on the ever-expanding frontier were the way it happened. And so he told the truth about that. He was a certain kind of a truther. But whether Kaczynski was any better than McCarthy, because Kaczynski took direct action in the real world and actually waged a revolutionary struggle uh, on behalf of his ideas, I don't know. And so if people are listening to my show, rather than blowing up the the bad guys, well, if they start blowing up bad guys, I'm not going to, you know, criticize them. But so often, like Kaczynski killed a bunch of people who obviously weren't bad guys, like the secretary of the guy he thought That's was funny. a bad guy. And so if if by listening to my show, people are not blowing people up, I don't know if that's such a bad thing. There are lots of, I get lots of correspondence from people who say to me, you're naive, Richie, that non-violent civil disobedience is never going to happen because people have become so disconnected and they've become so insular, inward looking, and in some cases narcissistic, that eventually it will come to violence. But I don't know of any civilization that was ever started um, or that was ever founded on the back of violence that ever amounted to anything. I mean, it, w- it would be a pretty terrible oh, wait a minute. They all have, Richie. What are you talking about? No, well, of course they have. But but I point out, you, you tell me where there is a great, you know, utopian civilization on, on planet Earth. And I will say, you're having me on. I don't know of any country in the world where I could take my missus and our dogs and and go and not be living under one form of tyranny or another. That's a really good point. And, you know, I guess there may be different degrees of tyranny to a certain extent, but these days it's getting pretty global. You know, that WHO uh, vaccine passport thing that they're pushing, where everybody's going to have some kind of digital vaccine passport, so you'll have to have a smartphone. I don't have any cell phone whatsoever, but I guess I'm I'm moving to Morocco uh, pretty soon, and... Uh, one of the reasons is this horrible you know, tyranny that the U.S. has descended into. But frankly, I may end up just ending, you know, I'll be trapped in a smaller country there the next time this happens because there's no way I'm going to have any cell phone, much less a vaccine passport on it that I can show the border authorities. So, yeah, the world is closing in on us and there aren't any real uh, safe spaces for sanity and freedom anymore. And so maybe it is time for revolution, but I think we better wait until somehow the circumstances emerged that that revolution would actually accomplish something. And at this point, I think listening and learning by listening to alternative media and thinking and and maybe trying harder to think strategically would be a lot better than just rushing out and, and, you know, perpetrating violence or trying to start some kind of a war in the real world. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Is humanity possibly doomed? I mean, I, I, I do have, again, a substantial number of listeners who are religious. I know you will have listeners who are religious too. They'll be Christians, predominantly they'll be Christians, Jews, Muslims, I suppose. But um, 
are we doomed? Like, is this, is, is this around if there is some eternal battle between good and evil? If, there, if we're in a spiritual war, is maybe this around we're meant to lose? Because, you know, any, again, if, if it does come to bloodshed and violence, and even if people prevail over the military industrial complex, the great reset architects, well, that's not a society that I'd be too, um, keen to be involved in because who's going to take over then? You know, the biggest and the baddest and the most violent, right? So, so I wonder, because I've had this thing in my mind for a number of years that maybe, you know, many of us will fight the noble fight, we'll fight the information more as best as we can, but maybe in overall history, maybe this is a round of the spiritual war that we're maybe not meant to win. I don't want to be pessimistic, but it kind of feels a bit like that to me sometimes. Yeah, I think that all situations where we're called on to do the right thing are part of a, a spiritual battleground that comes with being human. You know, we're always at, at at war, really, with our own worst impulses. And we have a lot of bad impulses. You know, the Christians may be wrong, in my opinion, and, and the, the, the opinion of the great Muslim interpreters of the last best-preserved revelation – that there's this original sin that totally corrupts us and we're totally hopeless and the only hope is to uh, have a vicarious sacrifice somehow atone for us because we're not good enough to fix ourselves in any way, shape, or form. I don't agree with that. I think we're, you know, I, I, I believe that we're born pure and then we have this series of tests, but they're really serious, rigorous tests. You know, we are given these negative impulses that we have to struggle against and that's the greater jihad is the struggle to be a better person. And, and that's a huge test. And that's the real struggle. That's the main struggle. And indeed, you know, more important than the lesser jihad, which is when, you know, the struggle in the real world in societies becomes a military struggle. And that's when it gets its most intense. But that's still just the lesser jihad. The greater jihad is the struggle to be a better person against our own worst impulses. And that's the one that everybody is always in all the time. And that's what we really should be focusing on. And that's why you know, when you, we ask ourselves, well, what should I be doing in this situation? Uh, unless there's some constructive purpose to it, then, you know, going out and, and doing, you know, violence just because you're so angry, that's, that's wrong. That's actually, you know, that, that's, you're losing in, in the real struggle when you do that. On the other hand, there are circumstances where violence is justified, I believe anyway, when it's clearly self-defense. And when there's an actual lucid rationale for it and there's a kind of an organized strategy and the possibility where there's a whole, you know, there's just war theory out there and everybody pretty much agrees. You know, the Muslims had just war theory in its most rigorous form, by the way, first, and then the Christians developed it and the post-Christian secularists have pretty much the same theory. It's all, they all agree that the only uh, justified organized violence is defensive and you shouldn't harm non-combatants. And of course, the Muslims took that the furthest, uh, and that it, you should only do it when there's a strategy and a rationale, a possibility of winning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it'd be nice if people would actually uh, live up to just war theory. Unfortunately, they never do. It's always the psychopaths who start the wars. Uh, take uh, Ukraine, for example. It's the, the aggressors against Russia who started that war and are on the wrong side of that one. Uh, so in reality, the reason that we have war is that people don't follow just war theory. If they did, there wouldn't be any because there wouldn't be any aggression starting it. This is really interesting, and it kind of segues into something I wanted to ask you. I don't think I've ever asked you before if you own a gun, but my 
many of my listeners who are based in the United States, they get annoyed when, when I say, I don't understand what the obsession is with owning assault rifles. You know, yeah, the first, the, 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 the second amendment, I get it. I totally get it. It's there and it's always been in your constitution. People have that right. They want to preserve that right to own a weapon, to defend themselves and to defend their property. But I make the argument all the time that it doesn't matter whether people own M16s or Kalashnikovs, AK-47s or whatever. The, the government and its agencies will always have much greater weapons. Um, do you think that this, this kind of gun war we see in the States at the moment where we, we get relentless coverage of shootings and then we get senators and they're usually on the left, I believe, and congressmen and women and they come out and say, we need to tighten our gun controls. We need, we need to tighten our gun controls. And then gun owners go nuts and they say, no, how do you see that whole agenda? And, you know, is it worthwhile owning a gun? You know, is it a smart thing to do if you're a citizen in the United States to own a gun? Is it something that you have done or would do? What are your thoughts on that, Kevin? Well, Richie, I, I, I side, you know, not wholeheartedly, but I still end up siding with uh, pro-Second Amendment forces. And I, I make a practice of not revealing what weapons I may be armed with or not armed with. I will yeah. tell you, I, ha- I do have some formidable ones, but I'm not going to go into describing them. Just in case somebody were, were thinking of messing with me, it would make their job too much, that much easier. You know, I lived in a vehicle on the streets of San Francisco. I had an NRA sticker on the door to dissuade not just criminals, but also police from kicking in the door and coming in. And it worked. You know, on, on several occasions, I had very angry police waking me up at four in the morning, but they, maybe that sticker helped them decide to end up going away rather than dragging me out or, or breaking windows and throwing in tear gas as they actually threatened to do once. Uh, in all cases, they ended up leaving me alone. And I sort of side with the deplorables on this one who say, if this is how they treat us when we're armed, imagine how they're going to treat us if we're unarmed. Fair enough. Just on the San Francisco, Kevin, was that when you were a much younger man? Were you a student at the time? You know, I, I was a kind of a bohemian roustabout at that time. Uh, I just mentioned this in the latest thing I posted yesterday in my tribute to Cormac McCarthy, he has this book, Suchery, about when he was a young man who had dropped out of college and was living in a houseboat on the river in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, making what little living he made by selling catfish to the local markets, hanging around with a bunch of really colorful local ne'er-do-wells. Now, he does, in that book, he doesn't really describe bohemian artistic activities, you know, poetry readings and um, film festival things and, and, you know, San Francisco Art Institute parties, which I, I, I was able to almost survive just living on the free food given out at parties for artists and things like that. So, but other than that, a lot of my life was kind of a San Francisco version of what McCarthy describes in his book, Century. And so I was, I was living on next to nothing. I was able to work pretty, uh, you know, not, not very many hours uh, of gainful employment and still managed to survive. And I, I did that for quite a while, and then I sort of ended up back in school, um, originally almost accidentally, and then I sort of accidentally <laughs> ended up accumulating two master's degrees, and the next thing you know, I was in a PhD program back in Wisconsin. So I'm not quite sure how that happened. And now looking at the uh, professoriate, <laughs> I'm, 
I'm kind of glad I'm not there. I mean, those people are mostly just incompetent hacks who have no business being supported by the taxpayers. You know, they're supposed to be dedicated to finding truth and to critiquing power, and almost none of them actually are. It must be um, weird for you. I mean, your your life story is so interesting. I mean, I don't know if you've ever written a book about yourself. I don't know if you've ever written a book. Truth Jihad, my first first post-celebrity book when I I wrote while I was being attacked on Fox News. Your life, Kevin, is it? Yeah, yeah, that's that's largely autobiographical with a little bit of 9-11 truth content. I must have a copy of that around here somewhere. Yeah, so I've just outed myself now as having not read it. But, um, oh, no. Yeah, <laughs> just yeah, yeah. no, 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 not, not for any other it, reason. It, it ain't Cormac McCarthy, that's for sure. No, but I'm sure it's bloody good, yeah, because your life has been incredible, really, some of the things you've done and seen. And, of course, we remember post-9-11. Um, I've been talking about climate change earlier on. And, look, I... We're free speech absolutists, I think, you and me. Well, nearly anyway. I mean, I can say I am. Um, I'm pretty sure you are. You might answer that in a moment. But so, so therefore, I'm quite happy to debate with people who believe that man-made CO2 is contributing to warming of the planet and that warming might lead to, you know, the planet becoming pretty, pretty hostile place to be in the future. So I'm open to, to speak with people about that. They're not open to speaking with me or others. But you must lament some of the things as an educator, as a teacher, as a lecturer. It, you, it, it must drive you crazy knowing what they are saying to children in schools, young children, not just in the United States, but it's happening in lockstep here in the UK, in Ireland as well, talking to them about, um, you know, gender theories and critical race theories and, you know, climate change apocalypses and none of this is being communicated to children in any sort of balanced way where they get to hear different sides of that story. Did you ever think such a thing was possible when you were making your own way through the education system? No, I didn't, Richie. At the time, to the extent that there was this sort of, you know, bizarre sexually deviant tendency in the academy, it actually uh, didn't seem that bad to me, although there were cases where it seemed to go a little too far. Uh, there was one professor at San Francisco State University who was notorious for shocking his students with bestiality films on the first day of class. Uh, oh, and that, and that, that was already happening back in the 90s. And I, I, I kind of thought that was a bit disgusting or certainly carrying things too far. However, that tendency at the time was a sort of bohemian uh, counterculture tendency in which it was taken for granted that the majority culture was, you know, being, you know, sort of critiqued and held up to uh, construct, you know, to, to thought, creative thought, to, to you know, give us another perspective so we can think about the dominant culture that we're in in a different way. And I always thought that was basically not such a terrible thing, like this carnivalesque aspect of the city of San Francisco and, and its various neighborhoods, including the gay Castro neighborhood, all that stuff back when it was bohemian and countercultural struck me as you know, it's prop, it's, it's interesting, you know, God put everything here for a reason. And this is, in fact, creating a sort of a funhouse mirror reflection of the larger, uh, the straight society and critiquing it. That's actually okay. And so when the academy was kind of critiquing the dominant culture through that stuff, I didn't have much of a problem with it. It wasn't my, fit, my main cup of tea, but, you know, whatever. But now it's turned it into a false religion. Everybody has to bow down and kiss the rainbow flag. Everybody has to bow down and kiss the Ukrainian flag. I guess the U.S. American flag is the third and 
and last form of idolatry here now. <laughs> and it's, it's just insane. It's, and it's disgusting. It's one of the reasons I'm very happy to be leaving this country. And yet, like, we, we will know. I, I mean, a, a, a very good friend of mine, Hayden Hewitt, a filmmaker uh, these days and making some brilliant films, in fact. You know, open-minded guy. I, I suppose you could, you could describe him as a liberal, but, um, he described things going on at pride parades to me that were just horrific. And yet you'll find most gay and lesbian people you bump into, they, they don't understand it. They're pretty shocked by it themselves. They don't know where it's come from because you will have known colleagues at university, um, in your time working at the University of Madison, Wisconsin, you would have known, uh, gay men and women. They just, they just don't know where this kind of stuff has come from, do they? There's, there's bewilderment among older gay and lesbian people as to what's happening here. Why are we introducing these concepts to children? Why dream up, let's have drag queen story time for children? Why, why, why bring furries, this weird fetish furries into schools to kind of mess around with children? It doesn't have the general support of gay and lesbian people over a certain age. It's, it's crazy, really, I think. I, I don't know what's going on with it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure some of the, you know, the older uh, gay people I knew in San Francisco, including my advisor when I was in the master's program in San Francisco, Peter Weltner, who's a pretty accomplished uh, writer and poet, uh, even at that time, you know, he, I think, wasn't so sure about that stuff. And I'm, I would suspect now I haven't really followed his career or anything. But, yeah, I would think that he and a lot of other people like him would be pretty horrified by it. Uh, it on the other hand, though, Within, you know, that there's a, I think, a tendency in the gay male culture towards depravity. And it has to do with the fact that human sexuality is balanced between male and female, with the male side tending towards sort of this uninhibited tendency to rape and pillage, especially when young and hormone adult. And that requires restraint. And typically the female side provides that restraint. It's the women, actually, who've created all of these restrictions on sexuality for their own benefit, because if they didn't, they would just be raped and pillaged. There would be no successful reproduction, and humanity would disappear. So, uh, you know, in San Francisco, of course, they've done these studies that show that the average gay man has something like about 28,000 sexual partners per year. Well, I'm exaggerating, but only slightly, uh, you know, some ridiculous number. And the average gay it's woman... It's not 28,000. Okay, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating. But he, an he, academic of, of your reputation... But no, look, yeah, you, no, no, here's, and, and the, the women have, have like, you know, 1.2 or 1.1. And the frequency of sex, the women have sex on the average of like three times per year, and the men like 3,000 or something. So it's, it is huge difference. That's because men and women are different. And so even gay men and women are just utterly and completely different in their sexual behavior. Well, you won't be surprised. I mean, we've had this out before anyway, that I disagree with this. I, I've seen no evidence. And, social and like, science. <laughs> read the read the social science, Richard. Let me finish. But but you know how heavily prejudiced the social science is when 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 you look at the, the authors of certain reports and their own, you know, their own belief systems. Uh, I haven't put that very well. But there's a lot of prejudice in reports about these things. You know that, Kevin. People often come at these reports from a you know a very definitive ideological position. Now you know this to be true, right? Christians and and Muslims in particular. But let me just say this: having worked with, I'll tell you where my belief is on this. Having worked with many gay people over the years, and I have done in the media, I have seen no evidence that gay men are more. Uh, th th that they tend more to depravity than straight men. I've seen no evidence of that at all, number one. And number two, 
I am absolutely convinced everything I've ever read going back years that um, we, we have uh, gay homosexuality is the anomaly. It is the naturally occurring anomaly within the system. You will always, going back thousands of years, you will always have people who are attracted to people of the same sex. That's that's my fundamental belief on on this. So I'm I'm uh, so I'm going to pull you up on that. Okay. Well, I I, I disagree, and I, th- I think if, you know everybody I knew in the gay community, and I knew lots of them. Um, I, I won't list all these, but. You know, women, men, everything—they all—they all know that everybody in the gay community in San Francisco, when I was there in the '80s and '90s, all know that the gay men, on the average, have huge numbers of partners and vast amounts of sex, and that the women have very—you know—very few partners and hardly any sex at all. That's just taken for granted. You don't need the social science to know that. Everybody knows that. Can I just say this? I hate to, to interrupt you, but you—you you will know, guys. I—I I knew plenty of straight guys. I'm going to use a bad word here. That were whore masters. I knew plenty of straight guys, Kevin, that I went nightclubbing with and they slept with a different woman most weekends. Plenty. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's probably a male thing more than a gay male thing. Probably. Exactly. But if, if we don't have women setting the rules for us and those rules say that if you have sex outside of heterosexual marriage, a terrible, you know, bad things happen to you, you lose social yeah. standing, et cetera, et cetera. If you don't have those rules, which are made by women basically and by God, but but basically put into the human community through women. If you don't have those rules, your society starts to have problems and ultimately collapses. My my gay my, my final word on this before I ask you about Ukraine. Uh, my gay friends would say tough shit, Paddy. They would say to me if I held your perspective on this. They would say born gay was attracted to boys when I was younger. Um, I'm with a partner. We've been together for 15, 20 years. We bother nobody. We make a positive contribution to our community. And if God doesn't like that, well, I don't like God either. There you are. Hmm. Well, uh, I would I would pray for uh, such a person to see the light. <laughs> but if whatever they're doing, as long as they're not spreading um, contagious bad ideas in public, I wouldn't be in favor of any kind of persecution of them. You have the last word on that. Tell me this. Do you have any idea what's going on in Ukraine, Kevin, other than what we get from CNN, Sky News and Fox News? It's been going on for a year and a half now. We hear about a Ukrainian offensive to take back territory that has been claimed by the Russian army. We hear stories in the media today about corpses of Russians, about Putin being a madman willing to kill tens of thousands of his own men to make a point. I don't know what's going on, Kevin. All I know is is that the the fallout or the, the 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 consequences of what is going on in Ukraine is a hugely inflated cost of living for everybody here in the UK and in most of the Western world. Um, energy prices that are almost you know unaffordable. What's happening there, and why is it happening? And are there any heroes in this Ukraine conflict? Well, I don't know about heroes, Richie, but. What's really going on here is that the United States is recolonizing Europe. I mean, it, it's been colonized since World War II, but Europe is always threatening to escape from American control. And, uh, you know, de Gaulle, of course, had to be put down. They tried to kill him, but they ended up uh, overthrowing him with the color revolution of 1968. It's, it's an old story. And now it seems that, you know, the, the U.S. empire is in in decline and it's facing real serious challenges primarily from china and according to michael hudson i think he's probably right 
the strategic managers of the U.S. empire have determined that they really can't compete with China. So what they're going to do is milk Europe. And so this whole war is really an American war on Europe to keep Europe down, to ensure the transfer of productive resources from Europe to the U.S., to keep the U.S. stable and prosperous enough so that it can continue to maintain its massive military that spends more than the next 10 countries combined and continue to occupy the world through the 800 military bases that are scattered all over the world. And so you guys in Europe who are hurting, you guys are being gouged uh, by the American military and the people who run it, and that would be the banksters who print the American currency. And that's about the size of it. So we can expect, as far as you see it, so we can expect this to be protracted then. This is going to go on and on and on, is it? Yeah, yeah, they're going to just keep on bleeding Europe. I think they want it to keep going on and on. I don't think they even really want any big Ukrainian offensive victory taking back Crimea. Well, I mean, good luck with that. Crimea is a Russian vital strategic interest. And you know, I, there was an article recently where some British military honcho was saying that British tanks are going to be rolling into Crimea. And I posted a comment on that news story, I think it was the Telegraph or something, saying that, good luck with that, uh, you know, Crimea is a Russian vital interest, and if British tanks ever seriously threaten Crimea, bye-bye London. And, and I think that they all know this. And so it's all a big joke. They're not really trying to take back Crimea. What they're trying to do, the people who are really behind this, it's not the Brits. The Brits are just the, the lapdogs, as usual, of the real imperialists who mainly use the American military to enforce their power. And those people just want this thing to go on and on so they can just keep on bleeding Europe and propping up the American empire. But I don't think there's much of an end game or even much of a middle game here. I don't see how this is going to keep the empire going more than, you know, a few extra years. This is interesting, Kevin. We we spoke years ago about the part that Victoria Newland played in the coup in Ukraine. Um, she was the Secretary of State for Eurasian Affairs, I think, at the time, and um, she was largely responsible for replacing the uh, Yanukovych, wasn't it, with um, with uh, Yatsenyuk? Correct me if I'm wrong here now, because I might get one or two details wrong because it's been a long bloody week. But she was involved heavily in it. Yats is our man. We all remember this. It's being claimed today by Colonel Doug McGregor, who, who a lot of our listeners will know, that um, Victor- that evidence has emerged that Victoria Newland approved the destruction of the Kakovka Dam in Ukraine. Do you give any credence to that at all? It certainly wouldn't surprise me at all if she did. Now, I don't know how uh, Colonel McGregor knows that, I haven't heard of any leaked tapes in which she brags about it, as we have those leaked tapes in which she brags about spending billions to overthrow the legitimate government of Ukraine. But again, it wouldn't surprise me at all. These war crimes um, and, of course, the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline, that was the worst act of economic and ecological terrorism in the history of humanity. And we're pretty sure now that the U.S. did it. It was you know, ordered or at least acquiesced in by Biden and presumably Newland would be in on that. And the same is probably true of the destruction of this dam, because just like the Nord Stream pipeline, this primarily benefits the uh, Western war on Russia. It's, it flooded out the Russian defensive lines, and it puts uh, the Crimean water supply in jeopardy and does various other things that tend towards 
advantaging Ukraine rather than Russia. So it was obviously somebody on the Ukraine side. And just like with Nord Stream, these decisions are not being made at the Zelensky levels. Zelensky is just a, a third-rate comedian and, and coke-snorting piano player uh, who takes orders from the Empire. So this would have come from somewhere like Newland and her friends in the National Security Council and the White House. And I think we can basically assume that. Uh, so, yeah, I think Colonel McGregor is basically right, although I don't know where he got this specific information. Yeah, it's just been doing the rounds of Twitter today. I should challenge the coke-sniffing claims about Zelensky, but I just won't. Um, nothing would surprise me. I, I suppose as far as puppets go, there, we, we have them everywhere. Boris Johnson was a puppet. Rishi Sunak is a puppet. Biden, Donald Trump, puppets, every one of them. But there's never been a more obvious puppet than this idiot Zelensky, has there? Uh, no, I mean, he's he's the biggest joke yet. You know, he's he's the second coming of Winston Churchill, who was also a depraved addict and uh, not the great guy we're told about. But Churchill, at least, you know, wasn't stupid. Zelensky is, you know, he's. I don't think his understanding of things is really any further along than, say, somebody like Ronald Reagan. You know, so he's. Uh, I, I guess it calling him a Churchill is a bit of an insult to Churchill, which is a hard thing to do. Churchill was really awful, and you know, he's strategically he was he was third rate. And uh, he was a, pup, a puppet of the worst uh, banking forces. Yeah, a genocidal maniac. Just look at India. We don't. Yeah. We, we all day long. We could talk about that. Just before we go, um, thanks again for coming on today. It's great to have you on, pal. Uh, Kevin Barrett.substack.com, truthjihad.com. I do have a copy of your autobiography, Kevin, and uh, I'm going to take it out and give it a read. And Uh-oh. we'll. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I will. Yeah, yeah. No, there's no earthly reason why why I haven't. You'll be spilling but, my secrets next. I'll be spilling all the secrets. There was a time when I got sent lots and lots and lots of stuff, you know, from um, authors and academics, and that's probably it. But it just rang a bell. But we've had so many conversations over the years anyway about your travails. But uh, can I just say this, and I mean it, because um, I know the the madness of moving country. I've done it twice, believe it or not. Well, actually, three times. It's, uh, it can be stressful. So, um, Kevin, um, Kevin's partner is the lovely Rabia. Rabia, if you're listening, good evening. I hope all is well. Uh, top lady. Good luck with it, pal. And try and stay as stress free as you probably, as you probably can, uh, as you possibly can. And I hope that everything that you uh, want to find in Morocco is there when you do settle there. I know you've traveled there, obviously, to, uh, to check it out and to look at properties and stuff, but, um, you're one of the good guys, and Rabia is one of the good women, so just the absolute best of luck with all of that. Well, thanks so much, Richie. And actually, one of the great things about being in Morocco is it's just a cheap air flight away from where you are. I know you're, you're hosting some kind of a get-together at a pub in August. I'll probably miss that. But maybe the next one after that, I'd love to meet you in person someday, inshallah. That would be fantastic. And don't be mentioning cheap flights, you climate murderer, you. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'll take a private jet then, <laughs> like they do to Davos. <laughs> yeah. Up on Bill Gates, the Bill Gates Express. Kevin, thanks again, pal. Look after yourself. Speak soon. Okay, thanks, Richie. Bye. Kevin Barrett, academic, researcher, author, broadcaster. KevinBarrett.substack.com. One of the good guys. You might remember Kevin many, many, many years ago um, asked his students at the University of Madison, Wisconsin, to uh, not to take all the the material about September the 11th coming from Fox News and CNN, not to take it as fact, but to look into it for themselves. And of course, the media came down on him. Academia came down on him. But he stood up to it and he's been um, looking into things and challenging official narratives ever since. One of the good guys, Kevin Barrett.substack.com.